Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be covering John 7 through 10. Now, I want to remind you that John's approach is to come back and say, hey, let's re-look at Jesus. You know the basic story, but let's go back and look at some of the things that he said, some of the things that he did, that now we see added meaning in. So watch for that theme. We're going to start in chapter 7 that talks about the diverse opinions that existed about him. Some people claimed he was a devil. Other people said, how could a devil do this many miracles? So we're going to watch this discussion about diverse opinions opinions about him. And then in John chapter 8 is the woman taken in adultery, followed by a discussion he has with the Pharisees about who he is and his relationship to his father. And then in John chapter 9 is the man born blind. And we're going to watch a foil exist because here's a man who starts out blind but comes to see physically. We're going to foil that with the Jews at the time who can see physically but end up completely blind spiritually because there is the Son of God and they don't even recognize it. And then in John chapter 10, we will hear the Savior's discussion about being the good shepherd. In what way is he the good shepherd? And again, more of the contention between he and the leaders of the Jews about his identity and his relationship with the Father. He will once again say this week, I am that. I am. So a lot on Jesus's identity and a lot on his character and his perfections. But let's start in chapter 7 that talks about the diverse opinions that existed about him. Notice the last sentence of the chapter summary. That sentence is a description of this whole chapter. The people have various opinions concerning him. So notice, for example, the diversity. Verse 12, there were much murmuring among the people concerning him, for some said, he is a good man. Others said, nay, but he deceiveth the people. They are talking about Jesus, the Messiah. Some people looked at what he was doing and said, he's a deceiver. Other people looked at what he was doing and said, he's a good man. Sound familiar in our society? So you live in the midst of a society that has very different opinions and polarizing opinions. About everything. About him and everything about our lives. Some people see goodness where other people see deception. Verse 15, how knoweth this man letters having never learned? Mike will talk a great deal about that in just a moment. Verse 26 Lo, he speaketh boldly, and they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? That's some compelling evidence for him being Christ. Verse 27, Howbeit we know this man whence he is, but when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. And then there's this whole discussion about him being from Galilee, and no Messiah comes out of Galilee. So there's some pretty compelling evidence for some people against him being the Messiah. Verse 31, back to the other side. And many of the people believed on him and said, when Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? Again, pretty compelling evidence for him being the Messiah. But on the other side, you're going to have others 
Verse 40, many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying said, of a truth, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. And again, some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the scripture said that Christ cometh from the seed of David out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? And then over on the other side, verse 46, never man spake like this man. Bryce, I really like your list, and I want to just add one to it, and that's verse 5, where it says, neither did his brethren believe in him. And you could see that being a stumbling block for some people saying, well, your own family doesn't think you're right. Now, in Christian tradition, we know that his brethren do come around and do believe in him. And James will become a bishop in the city of Jerusalem, a very devout Jew who's also a person who believes in Jesus, Jesus's brother from Mary and Joseph. But here they don't. And so I see that as a, as a powerful argument. I mean, imagine if someone said to you, I hear that he is the Christ, he's performed miracles, and then someone else said, yeah, but his own family doesn't even believe. I mean, that's a That's That's compelling evidence. Yeah, and Bryce, we live in this world where literally everything's up for grabs, and definitions and words and religion, everyone has a different opinion, and sometimes it can be, like you say, very polarizing. And you can look at the same situation, and two people will see it very differently. Some people will say, well, Joseph Smith is a deceiver. Other people will say, well, Joseph Smith is a prophet. And you're looking at the same person. So you live in that environment. And I remind you, that this is essential for the plan of salvation. Lehi said very clearly, there must be opposition in all things or else we live in a compound in one. So the Lord is not going to sweep away what some people see as evidence against truth. There is nothing out there that's definitively going to prove truth, and there's nothing out there that's definitively going to prove that truth is in error. You won't find totally compelling evidence that everyone agrees with that Jesus is the Christ. Now, could he have provided that? Yes. He could take away the veil at any moment, and we would remember him in premortal life, and every person on the earth would know, in fact, that he is Jehovah, Jesus the Christ. But that would ruin the plan of salvation. There must needs be opposition in all things. So we will always live in the environment where people are going to see Joseph Smith, the restoration, Jesus himself, and see evidence against them. Other people will look at the same people and see evidence for them. That environment is not going to change. But if you live amongst a diversity of opinion, there are some guiding principles. So let me give you the negatives that come out in John chapter 7. The first negative is in verse 13. Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. So many people look around and say, is it okay if I believe this? What will other people think? What will other people say if I choose A or B? I remember vividly teaching a group of ninth graders. And to make a point, I asked someone what her favorite color was. Simple question, and I thought it would give us a very quick answer, but I was shocked that she looked around for approval. She looked around to make sure that her favorite color was approved by the other people. And I thought, how crippling that can be if everyone else has to tell me what my favorite color is. 
what I should say and what I should wear. But that's a very real thing, to make your judgments based on fear of others. When we get to John chapter 9, you'll see an example of this. Let me just jump there briefly. The parents of the man born blind are called in to answer some questions about him. And there's a little bit of a confrontation between this man and the leaders of the Jews who are claiming that Jesus didn't do a miracle. And so the parents are kind of stuck. I don't know what to say. And then we have this verse in John chapter 9, verse 22. These words spake his parents because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogues. So there is one form of making your decisions, judging based on fear. And so let me raise the warning voice about not being acted upon. Do not make your decisions out of fear of other people. Number two is verse 24. Now, there's a change in your footnote. I like it as it reads. As it reads, it says, judge not according to the appearance. That's a beautiful reading. But Joseph changed it, and I think the other one is worth mentioning as well. Jesus says, judge not according to your traditions, but judge righteous judgment. Question your traditions. If something flies in the face of your traditions, it doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong or bad. I love that Joseph said that he was destined to prove an annoyer and a disturber of Satan's kingdom. And I see that both Joseph Smith and Jesus had to break down tradition that so many people judge based on tradition, and you don't fit my tradition. I think that's the root of racism and all the isms and all the ites that 3rd Nephi talked about is you don't fit my tradition, therefore you're wrong, and I cast you out. That's what he's talking about. Do not judge according to your traditions. You know, Bryce, when Section 76 first came out, there's a great quote by Brigham Young where he talks about this, where he says the saints and Kirtland really struggled with it because it didn't fit their mold. They come out of this Protestant, there's heaven, there's hell. And then Joseph's translating John 5, 29, and that last word in there doesn't say the resurrection of damnation. It's the resurrection of the distinctions or the dividing up. Christian can mean kind of judgment or these distinctions. And so Joseph's mind's opened up and he sees all these degrees of glory and he opens up this beautiful revelation and the saints just reject it because it didn't fit what they didn't thought. Matt. Yeah. Now there's another one in John chapter 7, starting in verse 47. Then the Pharisees, here's their evidence that Jesus isn't the Christ. Then answered them the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed on him? In other words, you make a judgment based on what do the important people say. It's the appeal to authority. It's the appeal to that popular group, the powerful people. Bryce, what you're talking about with this appeal to authority reminds us of the story of Semmelweis who was doing this study on why are we having certain people die after their having these surgeries performed. And long story short, he found 
oh my goodness, if I perform surgery after I wash my hands, infection goes down. And so he started to publish his findings and spread it out there, but the authorities rejected it, and they thought that he was off his rocker. And the bottom line is, he was right, but yet... That's not what the important people were saying. It just went against what the authorities thought. And I think sometimes the appeal to authority and what is popular is very comfortable. We're human beings, and we're clannish. We want our clan to accept us. And so I think these chapters really do expose some of those ideas. And Jesus is literally like a fish going upstream against a bunch of other fishes that are going the other way. And that fish going upstream is Jesus trying to teach truth. Here's another example, Mike. Now, those of you who love Wheaties, I don't mean to speak evil of Wheaties, but I personally... I can't stand Wheaties because how quickly it gets soggy. It gets so soggy so quickly that I really don't like Wheaties. But as a child, guess why I bought it? Guess why I wanted Wheaties? Because my hero was on the box. The important people in my young life said they ate Wheaties, and so I'm going to eat Wheaties, even though I really didn't like Wheaties. Now, that's a very popular appeal in advertising, but it's not a very safe way to make decisions. Are you making your decisions based on what the authorities at the time say? Joseph Smith said one time, the object with me is to obey and teach others to obey God in just what he tells us to do. It mattereth not whether the principle is popular or unpopular. I will always maintain a true principle, even if I stand alone in it. Right before Joseph Smith reveals section 42 about the keys and authority of the president of the church, he said, soon after the foregoing revelation was received, a woman came making great pretensions of revealing commandments, laws, and other curious matters. And as almost every person has advocates for both theory and practice in the very notions and projects of the age, it became necessary to inquire of the Lord when I received the following, and that was section 43. But I really like his phrase, advocates for the age. And maybe that's another way of saying there's a lot of loud voices out there who are advocates for something that's really popular to talk about today. Is that your criteria for making judgments? You know, once you live long enough, you start seeing trends and you see how something becomes really trendy and people advocate for it but then it goes out of favor because it was just kind of like a trend or a flash in the pan. And yet there's other times when advocates for the age, they nail it, they get it right. Like women's suffrage, they got that right. Or the end of slavery, they nailed that stuff. Other times when they come out and advocate for something, the pendulum goes too far one way and we have to self-correct. And that's one thing that I see through history is a constant self-correcting of trying to find balance. And I think right now our culture is in the midst of a tumult of opinions. And so I think everything you're talking about with these chapters really hits it on the head. And really think about this. The context of these chapters is Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. He's going in secret. 
Now, he's going up there because it's the Feast of the Tabernacles, it's the Fall Festival, and they're going to have the water-drawing ceremony, and they're going to have the lighting of the candelabras on the Temple Mount. And pious Jews are making pilgrimage, and Jesus' apostles are going there, but Jesus is going in secret. So I don't know, but I wonder if Jesus is kind of in secret listening to these discussions, or if John, who's writing the narrative is listening in secret to all these different opinions. It'd be so interesting to be there and see it. And yet that's our world. And we're always surrounded with this right now. And so this is important for us to see how the scriptures illustrate the problem, but better than just illustrating the problem, how do we find the solution? How do we do it? So again, let me just summarize those three negatives. Be careful that you're not judging based on fear of what other people think or tradition, or simply, what are the advocates of the age saying? Now, are they saying something that's right, and I'll join them? Or am I making decisions simply because that's what they're saying? Those are the kind of the three negatives that I find in John chapter 7. Let me turn around and give you some positives that Jesus points out. Positive number one, I think, is the most important of them all. John seven seventeen. I know you know this verse. It was Scripture Mastery for many years. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. In other words, investigate and do it. Try it. I would beg and plead that people do not criticize the Book of Mormon until they've read it. But so many people simply want to be critical of it in theory without actually opening its pages and read what it says. I would invite everyone to come investigate what does the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints actually believe on any one of these subjects. That's the invitation. Do it, and then you'll know. Be informed. Ask questions. Go investigate. If you want to know whether or not there is a God in heaven, then kneel down and pray to him. Make an honest effort to communicate with him. In the language of the Book of Mormon, you have to give place that a seed can be planted in your heart. That suggestion number one is take the time to actually do it. Now, that's related to the next one. Also in John chapter 7, Nicodemus says in verse 50, Nicodemus saith unto them, he that came to Jesus by night being one of them. Now, here's his defense. He says, doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? In other words, seek out genuine, authentic sources. Go to the source. Let me share two quotations from apostles of the church. One, Neil A. Maxwell in 1977 said, There are those who chronically misunderstand the church because they are busy trying to explain the church from the outside. They are so busy believing what they want to believe about the church that they will not take time to learn what they need to learn about the church. They prefer any explanation to the real explanation. Some prefer to believe the worst rather than know the truth. Still others are afraid to part the smokescreen of allegations for fear of what they will see. You cannot see the Louvre by remaining in its lobby. You cannot understand the church by remaining outside. 
Some insist upon studying the church only through the eyes of its defectors, like interviewing Judas to understand Jesus. Defectors always tell us more about themselves than about that from which they have departed. Some others patiently feed their pet peeve about the church without realizing that such a pet will not only bite the hands of him that feeds it, but it will swallow his whole soul. Of course, we are a very imperfect people. Remember, however, that while it is possible to have an imperfect people possessed of perfect doctrines, indeed such is necessary to change their imperfections, you will never, never see the reverse, a perfect people with imperfect doctrines. Go to the source. Elder Bruce R. McConkie said it this way, We feel it is not too much to ask in this age of enlightenment and open dialogue to let us be the ones who tell who we are, what we believe, and why our cause is going forward in such a marvelous way. Now, that applies to everyone else. If you want to make an informed decision, go to the very people themselves. Let them declare who they are and what they believe and why they're doing what they're doing. Take some time and be informed. Nicodemus said it very powerfully. Doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth. Take your information from genuine sources. I really like the comment by Hugh Nibley where he talks about this. And Hugh Nibley says, whenever you read the negative approaches to Joseph Smith, when people try to tell his story, they chop up or they parse out bits or pieces or sound bites from what Joseph taught, but they never give you the full story. And his classic example was the first vision account. And he he shows several accounts in the newspapers and the periodicals of the day where they never let Joseph tell the story. And I think about the world we live in today. How many examples do we see where they kind of accuse each other and they take sound bites from the other side and they just chop it up in the little sound bites to make the other look as bad as they possibly can without letting them speak. Well, did you read what they said? Did you read the full account from their perspective? And so I really think that's really where Nicodemus is sitting. He's in this position of talking to a group of people that he loves, but yet he is also spoken to Jesus. So he sees both sides and he's just asking them, hey, can you give them an audience? And that's one thing that I try to do in my life is to try to be objective and see both sides. And sometimes when we see both sides and they're not even talking to each other, we can acknowledge the humanity on both sides. They both have something to bring to the table, and we, need, we just need to put down our weapons and start talking to each other. Yeah. There's one more in John chapter 8. I love that Jesus, I think, gives the ultimate criteria for what he chose to do and not do. What causes he joined? What did he support? And I think this is a great one to add to the list. In John eight twenty nine. He that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. I think a critical question to ask is what will please my heavenly Father? 
What would Heavenly Father tell me to do? What would the Savior say about this? So I think those are three critically important ways to judge. Do it, and then you'll know. Go to the source itself and consider Heavenly Father's opinion as you make these decisions. I think those are great ways to judge in the midst of diverse opinions. That's really good, Bryce. I really like those three things. Another way to read chapter 7 is to see the differing opinions about Jesus, and it describes how some people are looking for him and discussing him while others are uncertain about his identity, just like today, and whether he'll even appear at the festival. They're asking this question, is he going to come? And I think there's lots of ways we can understand this passage as well. First of all, historically, this chapter is illustrates the tensions and debates surrounding Jesus's identity and his teachings in this context of the temple. Now, one of the things I see overall in the whole book of John is John is using temple themes throughout his narrative. We saw that in chapter one. We're going to see it here as well, where he discusses being the living water and the light of the world. Those two things are central to John chapter seven through 10. We can also read chapter 7 symbolically because John is using things that can be read through the lens that shows us the dynamic tensions that exist in his narrative between faith and doubt or between light and darkness. The themes of light and darkness are replete throughout the whole book of John. And if you remember John chapter 1, those are some of the first things that are split in the creation narrative. We read that God splits the light from the darkness. Verse 4 and 5, in him was life, and the light was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. These verses in John illustrate this theme of light and darkness, and they set the tone for the rest of the Gospel of John. And if you remember, we see this again in John chapter 3. The light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than light. And we see it again here in John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whosoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We see this theme also in John 9, verse 4 and 5, John 11, 9 and 10. It's in John 12, 35 and 36. It just goes on and on and on. Throughout the book of John, John uses those images of light and darkness to teach us to come to the light. He is the way, the truth, and the life, but he is also the light of all men. And that really sits in that theme when we read John chapter 9, where the man who's born blind, so he's in darkness, he gets to see the light, and those that can see are in darkness. Now, I want to just briefly look at that passage in John 7, where the Jews say in verse 15, how knoweth this man letters, having never learned. Some scholars interpret this verse as a reflection of the Jewish social and religious hierarchy at the time. And at the time, they placed a a great importance on education and religious training. And so in this context, the people's amazement at Jesus's knowledge and teaching may be seen as a challenge to the authority and status of the religious leaders and teachers at the time. Remember, one of the things they would say is, okay, well, who taught you? And we even do this today in linguistics. We'll say, oh, well, who was your Greek teacher? Where did you go to school? Yeah, or, oh, you came from Intel. Oh, well, you're already used to the culture of business. Welcome aboard. Oh, you went to Harvard? 
Oh, that's, you know, we do that all the time. And so Jesus is just coming out of nowhere. He's coming out of the backwoods of Galilee, as it were, and they're questioning, well, can anything good come from Nazareth? Or in this context, can anything good come from Galilee? And Jesus is just coming right at them, and he knows his stuff, and they're kind of blown away. So when it comes to the question that they're asking, how does this man know letters? That's really how it reads. How, how does this man know letters in John seven fifteen? It could really mean, how is it that he can read and write? It could mean that. But D.R. Carson says, such basic attainments were commonplace among Jews, especially the men, and would evoke no amazement. Rather, they were astonished that someone who has not studied in one of the great rabbinical centers of learning or with one of the famous rabbis could have such a command of scripture, such telling mastery in his exposition. About a year later, Peter and John similarly confounded the religious authorities who were compelled to observe that although that they were unschooled ordinary men, that's Acts 4 verse 13, they had been with Jesus and apparently drew their knowledge and authority from that exposure. Now here's the thing. I know there's a lot of scholars out there that say that these were just fishermen, they were itinerant preachers, they were illiterate fishermen, they spoke Aramaic, and they certainly didn't write the Gospels. There's that position that some scholars take. There's other scholars that are more open to maybe a nuanced approach. I'm in the space of kind of being in the middle. I don't look at these people who wrote the Gospels as completely illiterate people. And when I read John seven fifteen, to me, it opens up a couple of ideas. One of them is this, Jesus knew his stuff. Secondly, he taught his people. We read that in Acts chapter 4, that the people are amazed at his disciples. Third, maybe they don't know Greek at the time when they're walking with Jesus in 29 AD, but they could have learned it. And Sephorus was very near Nazareth, and Jesus did work there, most likely. Historians say he most likely worked there, and there was a large Greek-speaking community there. I'm open to the idea that he could have spoken Greek, and he could have taught his apostles. And I see the book of John as being written shortly after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. One of the reasons why I read it that way is because of some of the language we read in John chapter 9. When Bryce was kind of talking about the man born blind and how he was healed, look how it reads. If you go to John chapter 9 verse 20, we read, his parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age, ask him, he shall speak for himself. These words spake his parents because they feared the Jews. Now, that's significant. What that seems to show me is that there was a distinction drawn between people that believed in Jesus, the Christians, and the Jews. And most historians will say that harsh line was drawn after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So historically, if we think about this, if you were a Jew who believed in Jesus in the first century, you would have gone to synagogue and you would have read Torah and you would have discussed with your friends and neighbors, hey, we believe in Jesus. He's the Messiah. But you still would have gone to synagogue. That shifts in 70 AD. In 70 AD, after the destruction of the temple, at least those that were followers of John, I believe, what's called the Johannine community, these individuals stepped away from the Jewish community and said, we are not them. 
we are distinct from them. And the reason why is because Rome came in and dealt with the Jews very harshly after the rebellion in 66 to 70 AD, what's commonly called the First Jewish War. Why am I talking about all this? The reason why is because that puts the time period when John was written at about 70 AD. If that's the case, John, if, if he wrote this, had a long time to learn how to construct this. He has years and years to learn linguistically how to approach teaching the gospel of Jesus, how to construct the narrative of John, because clearly it's crafted beautifully. It's really written well, the way it's constructed. It's a beautiful narrative, and it's unique. It's not like the synoptics. It's a standalone text. And then before we leave John 7, I want to just mention this statement. In John 7, 37 and 38, we read the following. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now, just to remind all of us, John 7, 8, 9, and 10, these chapters are taking place at the temple. We read that in John 7, verse 28, it says that Jesus is in the temple. The context of this speech is what is commonly called the water drawing ceremony. There was a pool called the Pool of Siloam, and that pool was downhill from the Temple Mount, and the conduit to the tunnel that came from the spring of Gihon flowed into the Pool of Siloam, and you would wash ritually, and you would ascend from the Pool of Siloam to the mountain of the Lord in certain times of the year when there were feasts at the temple or when there were celebrations at the temple. And the Feast of Tabernacles is one of these. The priest would draw water from the Pool of Siloam in a golden container, and the priest would bring it in a procession up to the temple with joyful sounding of trumpets. There the water would be poured into a bowl beside the altar from which a tube took the water to the base of the altar. Simultaneously, wine would be poured through a similar bowl on the other side of the altar. And these symbolic ceremonies were to help the Israelites remember how God had been merciful to them anciently. If you remember, we read that the Lord split the waters back in Exodus 14 and 15 when the Israelites left Egypt and they went into safety. And then later we read that Moses drew water from a rock. And that rock, according to some tradition, followed the Jews. That rock provided water, and that rock that provided water to many of the apostles represented Jesus. And so this water-drawing ceremony was, the idea is that the water would touch the altar, and then the water would trickle down all the way down to the fountains of the deep under the earth, and then be recycled, go back into the spring of Gihon, go back through the tunnel and into the Pool of Siloam. And then next year, they would dip into the Pool of Siloam, ascend back up to the Temple Mount, pour the water on the altar, and then it would renew the year. So this was a thankful prayer for the past water we've been given, but it was also a prayer for future water. Because as you know, Israel is a dry place. They have to have water. So in the midst of this backdrop of this ceremony, this water-drawing ceremony, as the priest is performing his duty, Jesus stands up and he says, hey, you guys, I am the living water. That water that you're seeing, that you're seeing here at the temple, that's me. And if you come and you drink me, 
you will have life. That's essentially what he's saying. So in the midst of this, this Feast of Tabernacles, and remember, it's the Feast of Booths, or Sukkot, people would come and they would build these booths that they would live in outside for a period of time. We read this in the book of Mosiah during King Benjamin's speech, and it says that they all came to the temple and they were in tents. One of the things that this feast would do is it would celebrate and invite fertility. So this had a lot to do with the fertility of the land, but also the fertility of people. And so in the midst of those ideas swirling around, there's a tough circumstance that's happening here in John. There's a woman who's taken and she's brought to the foot of Jesus. And this is in John chapter 8. So this woman was taken in adultery. Now, there's no question. Now, we'll get into them wanting to trap Jesus in a minute, but I want to focus on a sinner in front of the Messiah. They want him to judge her. They want him to confirm that she should be stoned by the law of Moses. What Jesus says is powerful to ponder when you understand he's the only one that qualified. Jesus, after trying not to pass any judgment at all, drawing in the sand, when they press him, says, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Let me point out two things. He that is without sin is capital he. He that is without sin is the only person who can throw a stone. And he chose not to. The only person who really is qualified to throw a stone is not going to throw a stone. The second thing I want to point out is that he just judged her. Now, hold on, because there's a lot of baggage that comes with that word. He judged her as having violated the law of Moses. Notice that he said that, yes, according to the law of Moses, this woman should be stoned. He rendered a judgment of her action, but he didn't throw the stone. And everyone else is condemned by their guilt because they don't qualify to throw a stone. So they all leave. And when Jesus was alone with the woman, verse 10, he asks her, woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? Now, I think that's a critical word. Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, no man. Now Jesus says, and I think this is one of the most critical doctrines we need to understand about his personality. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now, did he judge her? The answer is yes. Did he render a judgment about her guilt or innocence regarding the law of Moses? He did. Even in saying, go and sin no more, isn't he acknowledging that she sinned? Now, here's the problem. With human beings, when someone judges me, they almost inevitably condemn with it. And so we get so used to judgment and condemnation coming together that we assume any judgment I got from God would also bring condemnation. But that is not so with God. That is not so with Christ. He has separated judgment and condemnation. He judged this woman as having sinned. 
but did not condemn her. And I think that's critical to understand. Now, you need to read the footnote. There's an absolute beautiful footnote in footnote 11c, where Jesus says, go and sin no more. Joseph Smith adds, and the woman glorified God from that hour and believed on his name. She was judged of God and yet walked away uplifted, inspired, motivated to act better. That if I ever had an exchange with the Savior and he said, Bryce, you've committed transgression. Bryce, you've broken my law. It would not be shame and disappointment. I would clearly know that my behavior needed to change. There is no question in my mind that I would walk away knowing my behavior needed to change, but not out of shame, not out of condemnation. I would walk away glorifying God. That, I think, will help me open the door and let him in. That will help me feel less vulnerable because it's not going to hurt. It's going to inspire me. Now, the second part of that is an invitation to do that. Can I be that kind of person? Can I separate condemnation and judgment? Could I say in my dating years, I don't believe you and I would be compatible and a good match, but can I say it without sending any message that I look down on them or I condemn them? Can I do it without saying, ew, no way? I think that's the invitation, is to judge. We have to make judgments. Should I hire this person or not? I'm going to make a judgment. Should I marry this person or not? Should I let this person into my life? I have to make a judgment. But I can make those judgments free of condemnation, and that, I believe, is the invitation from this chapter. That's good, Bryce. In those verses, verse 6 and 8, we read that he's writing on the ground in the midst of this accusation that's happening. And in verse 8, it says he stooped down again and he wrote on the ground again a second time, right after verse 7, where he says, he that was without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. I like to think in my mind that he's writing down the names in the ground of the accusers and he's writing down their sin. Now, it doesn't say that. That's just what I picture in my mind's eye. Before we leave these verses, I want to just acknowledge this. In the earliest manuscripts of John, John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11 is not in any of them. And so it's led many scholars to ask the question, okay, was this added later? And at the end of the day, we don't know. One of my favorite scholars in the book of John, uh, Raymond Brown, he mentions that this story may have been an oral tradition that circulated among the community of people at Ephesus that knew John and associated with him, and that they made sure to later get it put into the book of John. The people that knew John may have taken this oral tradition, textualized it, and inserted it into the book of John, but the evidence that it wasn't in the first or the earliest manuscripts that we have indicates that it probably was added later. And a second reason why a lot of people think this was added later is because stylistically, it doesn't read like the rest of the book of John. So John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11 may have been added later. And the way I read it is I think this probably was an oral tradition when the early manuscripts were put out there. And someone later said, 
oh, we forgot to put this part in there. And they figured, okay, where do we put this? Right here at the temple. Why do we know this? You know, we read this in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, where Jesus is early in the morning teaching at the temple in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles. And so right after this experience at the temple with the woman taken in adultery, Jesus makes this comment. It's in John chapter 8, verse 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. I love that. Jesus is in the treasury, which is in the court of women. We read in the 20th verse, these words spake Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple. On the day following the Savior's challenge to come to him for living water, in this chapter, the Savior was once again at the temple in the court of women. And the Savior declared to the multitude, I am the light of the world. Could there be any doubt in the minds of his listeners as to what he was claiming? You see, in the very place where these huge candelabras were giving light to every courtyard in Jerusalem, Jesus proclaimed that he was the light of the world, symbolizing the continuous light given to all the world during the messianic age. Jesus was saying, the kingdom of God is among you. I am here. When the king is here, the kingdom of God is among you. Jesus was in their midst. He is the light of the world. He proclaimed that he was that light. Not only was Jesus the light of Jerusalem, but of the entire world. You see, in the actual ceremonies at the Feast of Tabernacles that had developed in the time of Jesus, on the first night and perhaps on the other nights as well, there was this ritual called the lighting of the four candlesticks in the court of women. Each one of these, according to Jewish sources, had four golden bowls on top, which were reached by ladders. They were really tall. And floating in these bowls were these wicks that were made from the used up pants and the girdles of the priests. And so they would use those as wicks for these big candles that were really tall. And when they were lit, it is said that all of Jerusalem reflected the light that burned in the house of water drawing. That's Raymond Brown. Raymond Brown talks about this. And so in the midst of the picture I want you to see in your mind's eye is they're lighting these massive candles that are really tall, and it lights up the whole temple mount. And in the midst of this, Jesus proclaims that he's the light of the world. And so we have two symbols here that are really significant. We have him telling everyone that he's the living water and that he is also the light of the world. Those two symbols, light and water, were temple symbols. In John 6, he says, I am the bread of life. Well, when you go into the temple, when you proceed past the, the waters of purification and you come into the hakal or the temple, on the right-hand side is the bread of life. And on the left-hand side would be the candle, the light. And those two things, the bread and the light, would lead you to make the ascent. You would approach the veil in the ascent towards God. And now the only thing between you and the veil is the altar of incense, which represents the prayers of the saints. And so in praying, you would then be prepared to enter in the presence of the Lord. And we are going to see some of those images later in the book of John. John spends a lot of time portraying Jesus as the embodiment of the king, but also as a type for us to know how we can ascend. And many times Jesus will say in the gospel of John, 
that we need to be one with him as he is one with the Father. And so by reading those passages, we can see that Jesus is our exemplar, that we can look to him and do the things that he did. Now, we, we're not going to be Jesus, but we can do all we can to follow him. And in so doing, we make the ascent. And so I see John using these images we kind of have to pull the lens back and look at the whole Gospel of John from the very first chapter to the very last chapter to know how we can ascend. So after his discussion of being the light of the world, I just want to make a note that there's a lot of other things happening in John chapter 8. One of the things that's happening here is they're accusing him of being a Samaritan. And then there's this other part where he's talking to the religious leaders there at the temple, and they say in verse 39, Abraham is our father. And there's this discussion back and forth between Jesus and these individuals, and it could be pretty caustic. I want to just note that we put a lot of stuff in the show notes if you're interested in doing more of a deep dive on some of those things. We're not going to cover all of that in this podcast, but I do want to mention the end of John 8. If you go to verse 58, this is important. In verse 58, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. And it's right there in your footnote. The term I am here is used, it's identical with the Greek that we read in the Greek translation of Exodus 3.14. This is identifying Jesus, ego ami, as Jehovah. That's what's going on. He's not just saying, I'm a, a healer. He's not just saying, I'm a guy that is inviting people to repent. He's not just saying to people, hey, I believe in God. He is proclaiming that he is the Jehovah of the Old Testament. And so because of that, verse 59 says that they took up stones to cast at him. They're going to come at him. And notice what he does in verse 59. It's very reminiscent of the passage that we read when he was at Nazareth. He's able to go through the midst of them, and they don't hurt him. So now we're going to go into John chapter 9 and talk about the man who was blind from his birth. This is a foil. Now, a foil is kind of a fencing term where you cross two swords. One goes up and one goes down. Book of Mormon is filled with foils. Nephi is foiled with Laman. So we have Nephi rising at the same time that Laman is falling. We have King Benjamin foiled with King Noah. We have Captain Moroni foiled with Amalickiah. The Book of Mormon uses that art form beautifully to foil two individuals. So I want you to notice the rise in sight of this man born blind. He starts off physically blind. The Jewish leaders that are going to question him start off being able to physically see. So there's the contrast. I have one person who is physically blind and another group that is physically not blind. Now watch as this interchange goes on, and in the end, the person that was physically blind is the one that will be able to see, not just physically, but spiritually. Let me just briefly show you the ascent of the man born blind. So Jesus comes and spits on the ground, made a little clay, anointed him. He, he goes to wash in the pool of Siloam, and when he comes, he can now see, and everyone is a witness. So then they start asking, verse 8, the neighbors, therefore, when they when they which before had seen him that he was blind said, Is not this he that sat and begged? And some said, That's him. 
Others said, well, it's like him. And then he says, I'm he, I'm the one. I'm the one that was begging because I was blind. Now the question, verse 10, how were thine eyes opened? Now notice the starting point. All the Messiah was at that point was a man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed mine eyes, told me to go to the pool of Siloam. I washed and I received my sight. You know, Bryce, this is kind of like John 4, where there's a greater recognition, right? Yeah. It's that opening of the eyes. The woman of Samaria went through the same thing. So verse 14, now the leaders of the Jews get involved, the Pharisees get involved, and it was the Sabbath day on verse 14, which is going to add to that conflict. It was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then again, the Pharisees also asked him, how did you receive your sight? And he said unto them, he put clay upon mine eyes, and I washed, and I do see. Now here comes the the Pharisees. This man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. So blind to believe that. This man is not of God, even though he healed a man born blind, because he did it on the Sabbath day. Talk about blindness. Others said, but how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. So now they turn again to the man born blind. Verse 17, they say unto the blind man again, what sayest thou of him that hath opened your eyes? Now that little exchange, that little confrontation, and maybe hearing the people say things like, how could a man that is a sinner do this? Maybe hearing the arguments both for and against, I don't know what it did to him, but now his eyes open a little bit more. Not his physical eyes that have been healed, but his spiritual eyes begin to see. And now Jesus goes from a man that is called Jesus when they say in verse 17, what sayest thou of him that hath opened thine eyes? Now a little bit more definitively and a little bit more confidently, he says, he is a prophet. Do you see the growth? Do you see the sight that's come into his spiritual eyes? So now the Jews contend that he was never blind. This man didn't heal you because you were never blind. Verse 18, but the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight. So they called his parents in. And they asked, verse 19, is this your son whom ye say was born blind? Notice that accusation, whom ye say was born blind? How then doth he now see? Now his parents answered them not. We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who opened his eyes, we don't know. He's of age, ask him, he shall speak. Now, verse 22, we talked about this they said because they were afraid. They were afraid because the Jews were going to kick them out of the synagogue. So they said, ask him, he's of age. They don't want to accept that. Do you see how they're just covering their eyes? They're refusing to see, even though the evidence is right in front of them. They do not want to admit that Jesus did this healing. So in verse 24, give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. They are growing more and more blind. He answered and said, now this is where, notice his confidence. Remember, these Jews are going to kick him out of the synagogue. But he's growing more and more confident. Whether he, this is the man born blind, whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, 
that whereas I was blind, now I see. Now that is very compelling evidence, stated very matter-of-factly. That's pretty hard to brush away. Whether he was a sinner or no, I don't know if he's a sinner. What I do know is that I was born blind, and now I see. So they say unto him again, what did he do to thee? How opened he thine eyes? He answered. Now he's getting a little prickly. His confidence is growing. I have told you already, and you did not hear it. Wherefore would you hear it again? And then he says to them, will you also be his disciples? Notice the word also. I wonder if anything was pointing to himself. I think it was. I think it was clear to the Pharisees that he was calling himself a disciple in the very next verse. They reviled him and said, thou art his disciple, but we are Moses's disciple. Notice what they say about Jesus in verse 29. We know that God spake unto Moses, as for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. Do you see the evidence is becoming more and more compelling, and they just have to close their eyes to not see it. And yet this man is growing. He is now calling himself a disciple of Christ. So Jesus has gone from a man called Jesus to a prophet And now in the vernacular of their day, he would be calling Jesus master. I am his disciple. Will you also be his disciple? Now the man, his eyes ablaze, says to them, why herein is a marvelous thing that ye know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened mine eyes. We know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him will he hear. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man, ready, were not of God, he could do nothing. That's, he's come a long way from a man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes. Now he is saying, this man is of God. If he were not a man of God, he could do nothing. Now, what are the Pharisees going to say? They are absolutely dumbfounded at that truth. That an evil man has never from the beginning of time ever been able to heal a man blind. And so all they can do, verse 34, thou wast altogether born in sin, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. Now, who sees and who's blind? Now, the Savior is going to find him. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they cast him out, and he went and found him, and he said, do you believe on the Son of God? And fully trusting who this man is, the man born blind says to Jesus, who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? Jesus said unto him, thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Now he is Messiah. Now he is God. Not a man of God. He is the Son of God, worthy of my worship. 
So Jesus summarizes all of this with, for judgment I am come into the world, that they which see not, blind men, might see, and they which see, Pharisees, might be made blind. That is a beautiful foil. I really like that. It reminds me of the way the light is described in the first vision as it gradually fell upon me. It was this gradual revelation. Now, the 10th chapter of John is the final chapter this week. The way I read it is we're still at the fall festival in in John 10 until you get to verse 22. So the first 21 verses, this discourse where Jesus is talking about himself being the good shepherd, I'm going to read that as happening at the fall festival, but then verse 22 says, it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. That's going to be Hanukkah. That's going to be the celebration at the winter time that celebrates the story of the Maccabees and how the Jews were able to liberate the Temple Mount and cleanse it and develop their own nation, independent of overlords. And Hanukkah today is still celebrated in the winter. And so the rest of John 10, after verse 22, from verses 22 to 42, is that time period. And we're still into the space of trying to understand those that believed on him. That's John 10, 42. Many believed on him there. That word in the Greek denotes a deep and abiding trust. John is always talking about that word. Pistis is the Greek word, which means to trust or to believe as it's translated in the King James. So with that, Jesus is going to talk about shepherds, and he's going to say that the sheep hear his voice. Verse 3 reads, the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name and leadeth them out. And it's interesting, he contrasts that with those that climb up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. So he's using imagery that they would have understood. The people that lived in and around Jerusalem would have seen shepherds out in the fields. Maybe the people in the city didn't do this, but they knew who they were. And maybe there were some shepherds there at this feast. But either way, he says in verse 7, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. And all that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and he shall go in and out, and shall find pasture. The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. That's another image that's replete through the Gospel of John, is that those that come unto him have life. We'll see this later in John 14, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that image of life denotes this idea of having children, but also having life in itself. It's kind of like this cosmic life. Uh, I really like the description in section 132 of the Doctrine and Covenants, where it reads, this is eternal lives, to know the only wise and true God and Jesus Christ, whom he hath sent. I am he, receive ye therefore my law. I really like that idea in the sense that Jesus is inviting us to have life and to have it more abundantly. And in the context of that discussion, he then illustrates it 
by the image of a good shepherd. Verse 11 of John 10 reads, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is a hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth, and the wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth because he is a hireling and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known of mine. And then he says in verse 15, As the Father knoweth me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So we're talking about life. And then in case they missed it, he says in verse 17, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it up again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. To me, as I read verses 15, 17, and 18, in the context of life, what I see Jesus saying here is that no one takes his life from him. He lays it down willingly, and he takes it up. In other words, when they crucified him, it would not have killed him. He had the power to overcome even those nails and the scourging and the things that he suffered. Although he had mortal flesh, he also was God. He was fully man, and he was fully God, and he voluntarily laid down his life, and he had the power to take it up again. And so I think one way to read the first 21 verses of John chapter 10 in the context of the temple, remember, it's the fall festival. We're celebrating life and fertility, and one of the things he's doing here is he's using the image of a good shepherd, and by the way, one of the symbols of the shepherd was the staff. And in antiquity, Weidengren writes a lot about this, that the shepherd in antiquity, one of the symbols that the shepherd had was the staff, and it was symbolic of the cosmic tree of life, that the cosmic king would have in his hand a shepherd's staff taken from the tree of life, and that the true king was a shepherd, a shepherd who had the power to save. Now, it doesn't quote this in John 10, but I just want to read this bit right out of Isaiah, because I, when I read this stuff in John, it just reminds me of Isaiah. So I just, I can't help myself. We just got to read this bit right here. There's so much going on in, in Isaiah 40 with the temple here. But what I want to just draw your attention to is verse 11. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. That image in Isaiah is an image of the Savior as the cosmic king. And the image that I love in the artwork that many Latter-day Saint artists have depicted is this image of the Savior with the sheep in his bosom, and that's us. And John's portraying that image as the cosmic king that has power to lay his life down and bring it up again and give them life. And Speaking of the sheepfold and speaking of the door of the sheep, so that's John chapter 10, verse 7, one scholar said this, a first century Roman writer compares a general guarding his troops with a shepherd who sleeps securely, knowing that the flock is penned safely with iron bars, protected from the hungry wolves, raging fruitlessly against the fortification. Ancient Jewish sources provide less detail than we might like, but reports of Palestinian shepherds from the late 19th and early 20th centuries may well preserve long-standing pastoral practice. 
it is unlikely that all sheepfolds were the same. Variation in rank and resources would naturally produce somewhat different arrangements. One could build an enclosure for sheep in various ways. One could use a cave. And if you go to Bethlehem, you can actually stand in a cave where there's strong evidence that there were sheep in that cave at night and that there was a shepherd there at the door to guard the sheep. Um, Others talk about this idea that there would be a square hillside enclosure made of stone walls to keep the animals out and also to keep out the winter wind and a roofed enclosure or a temporary shelter using thorn bushes for sides of the building or as some think more likely, a yard in the front of a house, surrounded by a stone wall, which was probably toppled with briars. Such a sheepfold might have only one door, guarded by a porter and providing entrance to both the sheep and the house, or adjoining a house, but with its own separate entrance. I really like that description. And so the image I have here in John 10, where he says, I am the door of the sheep, He is the guardian at the gate, and we go through him to come into the Father's presence. And we're going to kind of read some of that when we get to John 14. Now think about that image. In those caves, they would house lots of sheep. I mean, there's no way a shepherd could take care of his sheep 24 hours a day and still eat, sleep, and drink. He would waste and wear out. So there had to be a place where multiple shepherds could store their sheep, maybe for to get a night's sleep or to get a meal. And then they'd have to come back and pull their sheep out. So this idea of gathering out my sheep amongst the others is kind of that idea that Jesus picks up in the very beginning of chapter 10. He says, to him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice. Now let me make two word connections here. The sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name. I must know the voice, and I must know the name that he's going to use when he calls me. Think about temple imagery. I'm going to be quizzed. Do you know the name that's going to allow you to come unto Christ and go to the Father? So notice those two ideas. The sheep know his voice, and they know his name. A stranger they will not follow. They will flee from strangers, for they know not the voice of strangers. Now, turn to Alma chapter 5. Alma's going to pick up that same idea in Zarahemla. In verse 38, notice the same words. Behold, I say unto you, the good shepherd doth call you. Yea, in his own name doth he call you which is the name of Christ. And if you will not hearken unto the voice of the good shepherd, to the name by which you are called, behold, you are not the sheep of the good shepherd. Hence, President Nelson has, from the beginning of his ministry, been talking about, do you know the voice? Do you recognize the voice? Are you hearing him? Will you, in a critical moment ahead, be able to tell which voice is his? Do you know the voice of the Good Shepherd? And do you know the name? Is it the name that you have placed upon yourself? Are you his sheep? Now, what I love is what Alma does next in verse 41. The way you know the name, the way you illustrate that I know the name and I know the voice 
Verse 41 says, If a man bring forth good works, he hearkeneth unto the voice of the good shepherd, and he doth follow him. In other words, I put his name on me when I live like he lives. To accept his name is to accept the way he lives and to follow him. To bring forth his works and to do what he does is how we put the name on us, and we will be saved. That's what I would emphasize in chapter 10. By identifying himself as the door, Jesus is emphasizing that he's the only way back to Heavenly Father, as has been stated. King Benjamin declares this when he says, There shall be no other name given, nor any other way, nor means, whereby salvation can come unto the children of men, only in and through the name of Christ, the Lord Omnipotent. That's Mosiah 3.17. So in John chapter 10, verse 22, Jesus is at the temple, and they ask him, tell us if you be the Christ, tell us plainly, in verse 24. And he says in verse 25, I told you and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but ye believe not. And so then... They have this discussion, and in the midst of the discussion, Jesus makes this statement in verse 30, I and my Father are one. And because he makes this statement, they pick up stones to stone him. And I think there are many ways to read this, but one of the ways to read this is that Jesus is basically saying that he is one with his Father. And for centuries, Christians riddled over this, like, what does it mean that the Father and the Son are one? And I just really love the simple explanation from the Latter-day Saint position, that they're one in so many ways. They're one in purpose. They're one in desire. They're unified in so many ways, but certainly they're not the same person. If you want to know more about this, we do get into some of the Greek, and we quote James Talmadge, and you can get into some of those. That All that stuff's in the show notes for you. But I just want to emphasize that idea, that Jesus is testifying that he is preaching the message of his Father. And then, because they're about to stone him, he says, for which of those works do you stone me? And they answer him in verse 33, and they say, for a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Jesus' response to that accusation is to quote Psalm 82. Is it not written in your law, I said, ye are gods? There are many ways to read Psalm 82, 5 and 6, but the way I'm going to read it is that in the council of the gods, in Psalm 82, there were mortals, and Jesus is basically showing them that interpretation, meaning that he was in the council, he was with the Father, and that there were many Elohim, many sons and daughters of God, and from God's perspective, we are Elohim but we are also mortal. We are spiritual beings having a mortal experience. But from God's perspective, he sees the end from the beginning, and he sees that his children can be exalted. That's my interpretation of verse 34. I know there are several. We put some good stuff in the show notes for you if you want to pull on that thread. But basically, he is quoting Psalm 82 to them. So after he gives that response in verse 34... We read that they don't believe him, and then it says in verse 39, they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. And then we read this interesting part at the end of John 10. It says, 
and he went away again beyond Jordan. So now he's crossing the Jordan River. He's going east into the place where John at first baptized, and there he abode. And many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle, but all things that John spake of this man were true, and many believed on him there. Now there's many interpretations as to why he left Jerusalem. Some look at this as he's leaving to avoid arrest by the Jewish authorities, that his time has not yet come. Another reason that he may have left is that he's continuing to teach his ministry beyond the confines of Jerusalem, beyond Jordan, to those that will listen. And another reason why he left Jerusalem is that it could be representative of their last chance to have the light. He leaves, and it's like the glory of God leaves. The lights go out, and he goes across Jordan. Now, there's lots of different ways to read it, but one of the things John is doing is he's showing that these people have their agency to receive him or not, and Jesus is doing his best to teach who he is. And the main message of John chapter 10 is that he's the good shepherd. And we skipped a verse that's really important that has a lot to do with the Book of Mormon. And so we're going to close this podcast talking about that verse. And that verse is John 10, verse 16. Now, it's very simple. It's very subtle. It simply says, Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. And then he just moves right on to, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life. No explanation. No further commentary, simply a reference to other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Now, we learn from other sources that he wasn't allowed to say anything else. Turn with me to 3 Nephi chapter 15. Jesus starts his favorite story, the story of the restoration. And he starts telling the Nephites and the Lamanites in 3 Nephi, This is the land of your inheritance. I'm reading from verse 13. This is the land of your inheritance, and the Father hath given it unto you. Now he says, not at any time hath the Father given me commandment that I should tell it unto your brethren at Jerusalem. I couldn't talk to them about you. Neither at any time hath the Father given me commandment that I should tell it unto them concerning the other tribes of the house of Israel, a whole nother group of people. I wasn't allowed to tell in the New Testament. I wasn't allowed to tell them about you or about the other tribes. The only thing I could say, verse 16, this much did the Father command me that I should tell unto them, quote, other sheep I have which are not of this fold. So he quotes John chapter 10, verse 16. That's all he was allowed to tell the Jews. Now listen to verse 18. Because of stiff-neckedness and unbelief, they understood not my words. Therefore, I was commanded to say no more of the Father concerning this thing unto them. They didn't accept what he was saying. Therefore, they couldn't have the more that he wanted to give them. Because of stiff-neckedness and unbelief, they understood not my word. Therefore, I was commanded to say no more. And allow me to end today's podcast with that message and a plea. They were not given more because they didn't receive what they were given. 
And Jesus is clearly saying, I had more. I could have told them more. Now, notice what he says next. You are the people I was talking about when I said other sheep I have which are not of the fold. I was talking to them about you. Now turn to chapter 16. Now I am telling you, I am telling you, the Nephites, that other sheep I have which are not of this land. I'm going to visit another group, and they're going to write scriptures. There's a whole nother book of scripture out there. The scriptures written by the lost 10 tribes. The scriptures recorded when he visited them, and they wrote it down. Second Nephi chapter 29 says that someday we will have those scriptures, but we don't have them yet. And may I suggest why we don't have more today? Turn with me to 3 Nephi chapter 26. Jesus was expounding some wonderful truths. And Mormon wanted to include it in the portion of the plates that Joseph was going to translate. In 3 Nephi 26 verse 8, These things have I written which are a lesser part of the things which he taught the people, and I have written them to the intent that they might be brought again to this people. Verse 9, when they shall receive this, the portion of the Book of Mormon that we have, when they shall receive this, which is expedient that they should have first to try their faith, and if it's so that they shall believe these things, then shall the greater things be made manifest unto them. We have been given the Book of Mormon as a test. And if we receive it, we will receive greater things. Mormon says in verse 11, I was about to write them. Meaning he was about to write some of the greater things in the portion of the plates that Joseph was going to translate. I was about to write them everything that was engraved on the plates of Nephi, but the Lord forbade it, saying, I will try the faith of my people. Now, do you see, the suggestion is that we as a people might be doing the same thing that the Jews did in John chapter 10. We have been given a small little sliver as a test. If we receive that, so much more scripture we could be given. But perhaps what the Lord said in Doctrine and Covenants section 84 is still true. Speaking of the saints in that day, in Joseph's day, the Lord said, Your minds in times past have been darkened because of unbelief, and because you have treated lightly the things you have received. And this condemnation resteth upon the children of Zion, even all. And they shall remain under this condemnation until they repent and remember the new covenant, even the Book of Mormon, and the former commandments, which I suggest is the Bible, which I have given them not only to say, but to do. The Jews had a key to unlock more truth, and it was to receive what Jesus was giving them. They did not turn that key. 
May we learn from that lesson and understand that we today have been given a key. And the key, if we turn it, will unlock countless more pages of beautiful, wonderful, helpful Scripture. There is so much more that God wants to give us. Take what we've been given and don't treat it lightly. Digest it. Love it. Do it. Say it. Live it. And with that, we thank you for your time. We will see you next week when we cover Luke 12 through 7 and John chapter 11. Make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.